Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your love. Father, your love that is on display through the cross. And Lord, we thank you that you've opened your arms to welcome us as your children. You alone, Father, can forgive our sin. And you alone can heal the scars of shame. Father, when we were found guilty, the blood of your perfect son, Jesus, was spilled so that we could be declared innocent. God, thank you for that mercy. God, may we run to no other source of refuge, no other fountain, no other fullness, or rest in no other relief than in the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, work in our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, then you can go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning, and, uh, and we'll get there. My name's Jared Clary. I'm, the, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm over students and missions. And so uh, while Tracy preps for Genesis, which you won't want to miss out on that, then uh, I get the privilege to, to preach this morning. And so um, it's a joy to be with you guys this morning. But we're in this series called The Word of God. Um, and what we've been doing in this series is, if you missed some of it, then early on, what we did was, was we kind of talked about, okay, so you've got your Bible. How, how can you have confidence in it? Is it necessary? We talked about its necessity, and we talked about its authority, and we talked about its sufficiency, and we talked about its clarity, that, that you can know God's Word, that it's good for us, what it, what it does for us. And so you can go back online, and you can check those out, and you can get caught up with, so that you can have confidence in your Bible, that when you open it up, you can have confidence to know what it is and, and what God says to you. And now what we've been doing is, okay, so, so how do I read this? How do I read this? Do I just do the old flipperoo and that's what God has for me? Well, no, that, that's not a good way to read your Bible. Like early on as, as a, a young Christian, maybe God would use that in your life, but, but that's not the best way to read the scripture. There's, there's a story that God's unfolding. And so what we've been doing is we've been walking through that story of what is the purpose of the Bible. And what I talk to the students about is that the purpose of the Bible is, is to tell you who God is, what he's doing, and how you can be a part of it. The, another way that you might, you might think of that, and we've got some, some handouts at the two doors. You can pick it up on the way out if you didn't get one on the way in. But another way that you might think of that is that the Bible is the story of God redeeming and restoring his people, and his planet. Let me say it again. That the Bible is the story of God redeeming his people and his planet. He's restoring and redeeming his people and his planet. And so what we've been doing is, is we've actually been walking through six covenants. Now a covenant is a, is a promise. It's a, it's a relationship interaction that God made with his people. And so we walk through six these. We're walking through these six covenants, and so we'll look at the fifth one today. But let me recap where we've been. Number one, we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 that God entered into this relationship with Adam in this Adamic covenant. And, and what we saw in that is we saw the picture of God's redemption and restoration. 
We see the picture that, that God's in this and, and we see in the garden this perfect community between God and man that they walk together, they talk together. And then we have this massive problem that happens in Genesis 3 called sin where man disobeys God. He chooses his own path rather than God's path. And so sin enters the world. And in Genesis 3, we see that God makes this promise that ultimately he's going to send one who's the seed of the woman who will redeem and restore all that was lost, his people and his planet. And so then we get to Noahic covenant, and we're in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, and so we're just in the first few chapters, first couple pages of Genesis, and we see that God makes this covenant. He enters into this relationship with this man named Noah because the sin of the world had grown so much and that it was wickedness everywhere. And so God destroyed creation in the flood in order that he might make it new. And he restarts through Noah and his family. And we see in that covenant the scope of redemption and restoration. That not just is he going to redeem my people back to himself, but he's going to restore creation. And then we move in Genesis 12 through 17, we get to the Abrahamic covenant. So God enters into this relationship covenant with a man named Abram, and then he later changes his name to Abraham. And so we looked at that last week, that in this relationship, we see the source of redemption and restoration. We know that this redeemer is going to come through the seed of the woman. It's going to be a, a human. And then we see that it's going to redeem all of creation, not just humanity, and then it narrows a little bit more through the seed of Abraham. And so this promise with Abraham, God makes, he says, I'm going to give you a people, and I'm going to give you a place, a land, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. And so we see through that there's this narrowing, and we see that the source of redemption and restoration is through faith. Because Abraham was considered righteous by his faith. Not because he perfectly obeyed, but because he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so we see the source of redemption and restoration is faith. Then we got to Moses in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And we see that God gave this law to Moses and, and God entered into this relationship with Moses and said, I will dwell with you and be your people. Obey me. And what we see in the Noahic covenant, or in the Mosaic covenant, is we see the problem of redemption and restoration. That the people couldn't obey God with perfect, faith filled obedience. They couldn't do it. Moses was on the mountain, he comes down the mountain, they've already disobeyed. So they give them more laws, and they disobey more laws, and they give them more laws, and they disobey more laws. And, and the problem was not outside of them, it was them, it was their heart, that they're sinful. And so we see in the Mosaic Covenant that the problem is the heart, that it rebels against God and chooses its own path. And so now we've got the picture, we've got the scope, we've got the source, we've got the problem. And what you see if you read your Bible, you end Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you pick up after what's called the Pentateuch, the first five books, in Joshua. And so you've got Joshua, and Joshua pops on the scene, and he's been Moses' guy all along, and he's been his right-hand man, and, and, Mose, and Joshua now is going to lead the people into the promised land. And you go, oh, is he going to fulfill this Abrahamic promise? 
to give them a land, to make them a people, that they would be a blessing. And you see as you read from Joshua that the peop- as the people obey, they experience the blessings. As they disobey, they experience the curses. As they obey, blessings. As they disobey, curses. And you see this up and down and up and down, and, and they're, they're just rebellious people. And so then you get to judges, and God had given these judges, these men that would help to corral, to restrain the people's disobedience. And you see in the judges, up and down and up and down, and as the good judges that led them to the Lord, they would go up and experience blessings, and bad judges, as they disobeyed, then they would experience the curses. And so you get to the judges, and, and you go, man, there's still just this massive problem. How in the world is God going to do anything good out of this? Now track with me. I know it's like a, a, you're sitting in class, but follow with me because we're walking through this story and we're asking the question, so how does knowing these covenants help me? What does that have to do with me? Well, God's unfolding his story and he's telling you who he is and what he's doing and how you can be a part of it and how he's re- redeeming a people and a place And you fall in that line. You're a little bit farther down the timeline. But we're in this story. This has to do with us. But if we don't understand the beginning of it, then how would we know where we're at in it? And so we're asking that question, so how does the Davidic covenant help me understand the Bible? And what we see in the Davidic covenant as you end Judges, then you get introduced into First and Second Samuel, and there's this, this guy who pops on the scene because Israel's saying, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else around us. We want a king. And they go, God says, no, you don't. Let me be your king. And they go, no, 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 no. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And God says, be careful what you ask for because they get a king, and his name's Saul, and he's, he's the people's king. And then Saul ends up leading the people not towards the Lord. And what happens is then God says, here, I'm going to give you my king, David, God's chosen king. And he's different from the people's chosen king. And so we get introduced to David in in 1 Samuel. And then 2 Samuel, this is where we're at. 2 Samuel chapter 17. What we've seen in there, and if you'll read it, in this next three years, we're going to be walking through the whole Bible. So you'll be reading these things, the whole church through the whole Bible in three years. And so we'll be walking through this and we're putting this story together. But what we see with David is we see the hope of redemption and restoration. The hope of redemption and restoration. So David, here in chapter 17, then... uh, uh, to just catch you up um, to what, what has been going on is, is in, he's been conquering people and he's been walking through um, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Sorry, it, it rehashes. Everybody's like, what? What? I hear the pages flipping. It's like something's off. Like I don't, I didn't get it. Like, um, sorry, in, in Chronicles, then it repeats this story in, in 1 Chronicles 17. That's where my other bookmark was. Sorry. In 2 Samuel 7, then God is is in this place with David, and David has conquered all of these places, and we pick up here in verse 1, and it says, Now when the king lived in his house, 
and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David's saying, like, look at me. I'm sitting in this palace. I'm sitting in this house made of cedar. And it's awesome. But, but God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, which was, which was the representation of God dwelling with his people, was in a tent. And there was something in David that just goes, this isn't right. So he goes, I'm going to build him a house. But then verse 4. It says, but the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Nathan's this prophet who is this, this mediator, in a sense, between David and God. And so God spoke to Nathan, and, and here's what he says to Nathan. Verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God goes, time out. If I wanted a house, I'd ask somebody for a house. Right? And so he's like, do you think I wouldn't have told him that if I wanted him to build me a house? And right here, God's going to shift, and he's going he's to begin to proclaim something to David. Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time as I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David's not making God a house. God's going to make David a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When, I, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all his vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. God, would you give us insight Lord, would you help us to see, to understand your word. Lord, that we might be captivated by your story. That it would awaken in us passions which are greater than, than earthly, fleshly, worldly passions. That we might be captivated by your story and how we fit into that. 
of who you are and, and how you're redeeming a people and a place for your glory. We ask that you would meet with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what we see in this passage is that, that there's an Old Testament scholar, Bruce Walkey, who says there's actually 10 blessings or 10 promises that, that God shows in this. And, and we see in that that three of those are fulfilled in David's lifetime. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on those. They're, it's basically that he gives them peace, he gives them a land, he pushes out their enemies, and they have rest. And then he says that there's four of these promises that are actually fulfilled in Solomon because God makes this promise that through you, David, through you, then, then I'm going to give you a, a dynasty, a house. I'm going to give you a kingdom. I'm going to give you a throne. And we see that there's some of these promises that are actually kept through Solomon, that, that Solomon does actually get disciplined when he disobeys, that Solomon does build some of these things and do some of these promises, that there's a heritage that lasts. But there's three of these that are fulfilled in a future heir. Okay? They're fulfilled later, like down the timeline. That they're not fulfilled in Solomon. And that's the great anticipation is that we get introduced to Solomon after this and, and we go, oh, is he the one? Is he the promised guy? The seed of a woman? The seed of Abraham? Who will redeem and restore? And we find out pretty early on that he's not. Like, he's got some wisdom, and you should read, you should read that wisdom. And he, God says that he's wise, but he's not filled with perfect, faith-filled obedience. He messes up in some pretty royal ways. And so we see as we continue to read, okay, so I'm looking for someone. Let me give you these three um, blessings or conditions of this covenant. It's that... Like I said, that, that there's going to be a, a house that's going to be established, that there's going to be a kingdom that's going to be established, and there's going to be a throne that's going to be established. Look at verse 16. This is where we find all three of these. God's saying to Nathan, to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that's the like forever, right? That's forever, forever. Like no end. Now that's important to know because as we walk through First and Second Samuel and then we, we see the Chronicles and we see Nehemiah and we see all of the rest of our Bible all the way through until the New Testament. I mean, look at this. All the rest of this is we're seeing, so God made a promise to David that he's going to give him a house forever, a dynasty. That he's going to give him a kingdom forever. And that he's going to give him a throne forever. And as you read that, you go, uh-oh. This doesn't make sense. Because the kings begin to fail. And instead of pointing the people to God, they point them away from God. And so God, true to his word, he disciplines them with the rod. And he disciplines them, and they're so rebellious, and they're so wicked, that actually the, the land that David conquered, that they had peace, begins to be conquered back by enemies, by Babylon. And they end up in exile. And they end up with no throne, no Davidic kingdom, like gets cut off. 
And as you read these prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, you begin to see, like, what's happened to David's promise? But that's the hope that they cling to. And so we see from, uh, in this passage, we see from Isaiah that, that he says in 55.3, he, he clings to the hope of the Davidic covenant that God made with David. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, it points us to the hope of this Davidic promise. The people are in exile. There is no king and there is no kingdom. Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28, points us to the hope of the Davidic promise. You read Psalm 89 and, and it begins with this promise and this covenant that God made with David and And then you get most of the way through the psalm and he goes, God, but the throne of David is cast down into the dust and where are you? God, have you forgotten your promise to David? God, please keep your promise to David. Remember, you promised. And we end the Old Testament with no Davidic king no Davidic kingdom. And God doesn't speak for 430 years. Has he forgot his promise? There's a seemingly hopeless darkness. But God does speak, and a new light shines on a girl named Mary. And as we begin the Gospels, we're introduced in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, we're introduced in the Gospels to the line of David, one who would come from the house of David 
one who would sit on the throne of David, one whose kingdom of David, he would rule and reign and there would be no end. So how does it help you understand your Bible and read your Bible? Well, it points you to Jesus. And so as the gospels unfold in Matthew 1, 1, then we're introduced to the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, the one in whom we've all been longing and waiting for, who would redeem and restore his people and his planet. And so as you read the gospels, then you go, oh, yeah, this is the guy. Look, he does miracles. He has a kingdom that's not of this world. Oh, wait. He just said he's going to be killed. He's going to suffer and die. Time out. We see the reaction from the disciples. Time out, Jesus. No, no, no. You're the promised king. You're going to rule and reign. You're going to sit on the throne of David forever. He goes, see, my kingdom's not of this world. It doesn't function like this world. But I'm redeeming and restoring a people and a planet And so how does that happen? Well, it points us to the cross. And as we see in the Gospels, as they unfold, then we see wherever Jesus goes, then his his kingdom is being established. And we see that, that he functions in his kingdom. That's why miracles happen. That's why people get saved. That's why the lame are healed and the blind see. Because he's the king in his kingdom and he's ushering it in. And he talks so much in the parables about the kingdom of God. And what it's going to be like. And then he goes to the cross. And he's beaten. And he dies. And above him they hang a sign that says, King of the Jews. See, but he didn't stay dead. That's our hope. Right? That he didn't stay dead. And so as we get to the New Testament, and as Jesus has died on the cross, and then he's rose again, and then... He ascends into heaven and he says, hey, I go to prepare a place for you. What's he preparing? A place. He's redeeming a people in a place and he's preparing a place. And Peter says this to the people. This is right after Jesus has left. And it says this, men of Israel. This is Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's been his plan all along. From the very beginning, God said, through the seed of the woman, through the seed of Abraham, through the son of David, It's been his plan all along. It's been his definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He says, you crucified him by by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
And Peter's saying, hey, check this out. Who's that about? Is that about David? Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that our patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. I wasn't talking about David. I was talking about the hope of Jesus. I was talking about Jesus, the Christ who would come, the promised one, the seed of David. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, this is David speaking, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He sits on the throne of David. He rules in his kingdom. And so Peter keeps going. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, what happens when you hear this message? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? This is the promised guy. This is our hope in whom we've been longing for. What do I do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You see where you fit on the timeline? It's for everyone who would call on him. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. See, this has been God's plan that's been unfolding from the very beginning to redeem and restore a people and a place for his glory. So how does understanding the Davidic covenant help us? Well, it points us to our only hope. There's salvation in no one else. So if you've never placed your hope in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he would long for nothing more and we would rejoice in that for today to be that day that you would say, what should I do? Say, put your hope in Jesus. He's your only hope. He is the means in which God has provided for us to be made right. But what about the rest of us that have put our hope in Jesus? How does this help me? Well, we're in a lot of the same place that the people who were longing for the, the hope of David the first time, for Jesus to come the first time. We're in that same place. We're longing for his return, aren't we? When like the passage that Kevin read out of Revelation 21, we see that he's going to fully usher in his kingdom, that it's going to happen. He's going to redeem and restore. He's going to wipe away every tear. There will be no more sickness there will be no more pain. There will be no more hurt. He's going to restore what was lost in the garden. And there will be a people and a place for his glory. We long for that hope, right? We press on for that hope. And so what does the rest of your Bible tell you? It says, hey, don't forget, 
Continue to press in to Jesus. He's your only hope until that day. But know for certain that if God promised it, it's going to happen. Even when it looks like nothing good could come out of the tangled branches of the son of David, God brought forth his Redeemer. Even as you look at this world and you say it's wrecked with pain and hurt and sickness and destruction, oh, he's going to make it all new. Rejoice and long for that day. As believers, that's what we do. And that's what the word of God teaches us, is how do we continue to press into the hope of Jesus that will get us to the future day when all things are made right? It's the Davidic covenant. It's the throne is going to rule and reign forever. The house will be forever, and the kingdom will be forever. Let's pray. God, would you help us that we would see in your provision through the seed of the woman, through the seed of Abraham, through the the son of David, God, that you provided a way of escape. Lord, not because of anything we've done, not because we've earned it, but because you're gracious that if we would by faith trust in you, trust in your provision, Lord, that you would redeem us and restore us. You would begin that process of sanctification, of making us new, that we would be more and more and more the image of who you are. Lord, we thank you for the way that you do that. Lord, would you help us to endure with our eyes fixed on our hope, as Hebrews talks about the anchor for our soul, Lord, that we would endure until you do make all things new. Lord, that that would be our hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.